listening to that Jesus podcast. Good day, one and all. I'm your host, Titus. I'm joined by the past tense of draw, Drew. <laughs> but it's Latin. Not spelled that way. Have you ever drawn Latin characters? Uh, so actually, Latin is spelled using the um, Latin alphabet. So yeah, which is to. which is what we use. Yep. Okay. You learn you learn new things every day. Uh, I, my audio probably sounds a little better. I've, I got my computer up and running. You know, I'm about to sue. I hope so. My wife. I'm about to sue my wife's business because her dogs have chewed up two computer cords now. So I'm on my third computer cord, um, but hopefully my audio sounds a little better. Yeah, so I'll just I, put this call out to the our listening audience that I told you last week. If if you have another, my dog ate my computer cord excuse for your bad audio again, then um, I'm finding a new co-host. Yeah, that's not the way this non-inverted <laughs> hierarchy works, but... I'll keep everyone posted about how this litigation is going for me. Definitely keep me in your prayers. Um, Anyhow, I I think it's time for our look back at what's been a buzz in our culture, Drew. I think it's time for that weekly buzz. All right, well, what you got, Drew? Oh, I get to go first? You do. That's exactly what you said um, last time, or the first time I asked you that. Is that <laughs> your going line? <laughs> I guess so. I have to get more, more um, a little more unpredictable. Creative. Yeah, yeah. So I know this is really kind of falling into into a type for me here, but with the uh, interview we're going to do today, I just had to think about. Um, I, well, okay. What I did is I went and I found a news story about Columbus Day and Indian boarding schools. I got an email from one of my coworkers today, one of the higher ups. And this week they're actually having a sonar crew coming out somewhere. I think they're coming to explain how they're finding um, dead bodies of Native American kids buried outside boarding schools where forced assimilation happened. So what's a sonar crew? Well, see, I don't know, and I was looking desperately to find more detail, but you said it has to be like a news story. So, yeah, so they actually, um, like, like scan the grounds around these boarding schools to to discover the locations of dead bodies. So why are there a lot of dead bodies buried there? I, I know Canada recently found a bunch, but I didn't really look yeah. into how all that went down yeah and i again there's never enough time to research these things but uh in british columbia back in june they found 215 graves of native kids at a residential boarding school and the the boarding school thing here is where in the early 1900s the um united states of america along with the bureau of indian affairs decided that they needed to save the children the save the the human being by killing the indian within the human being forced assimilation and of course when you're trying to take somebody away from their culture you don't understand what they eat what they believe what they practice and you're forcing them away from their support community that's just unhealthy on so many levels including physically so yeah there was um so they killed both 
Yeah, in some cases they did. And, you know, a lot of these people Man, really well, that's had... dark. <laughs> yeah, and that's why, to, to tie way back um, to, you know, 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that's why it feels like slap, such a slap in the face for so many people to celebrate Christopher Columbus, who kind of started... He kind of started relation the relationship between uh, Native Americans, the indigenous people that were here on Turtle Island, uh, North America, uh, and Europeans. He really set things off badly. And so it's like, let's celebrate this guy who just made things go so bad. Yeah. So more on that is coming up in our interview. But in keeping with this morbid theme. Now, you know, why I wanted you to go first. Yeah, well, I don't have I don't have much more cheery news. Uh, last week we passed seven hundred thousand COVID deaths in America, so just you know we're talking a lot about death today. Halloween's coming up, and that's uh, we we need some spooky theme music to go along with this this morbid intro. But that's like one in every four or five hundred people in America now. Which is which is crazy. Like when when this thing broke Are you sure out, about that? that seems yeah. I mean, really... three, there's 360 million people, and almost I mean, getting close to a million people are are going to be dead. Um, so mm-hmm. that's one in every 500 or so, if my if my math is correct. Yeah, and of course all so, the caveats about uh, correlation and causation, and you, you really need to get all ghoulish and talk about well, how many years did an individual person have so how many how many years did we actually lose for a person but one way that, that's a that lot matters. of emotional impact i i hear conservatives say that i I, th- I think that's just a sort of an ageist thing to say like why, why does it matter okay so if someone's gonna die one day later maybe but i'm not sure that someone who is 60 dying who would have lived until 70 is any better than someone who's 40 dying okay yeah, so i don't but but if you're actually going to be making policy around this, think about it like this. So you have people who are 80 losing maybe two years of life, which is horrible and tragic and sad. And then you're also looking at making policies where kids aren't getting educated, kids aren't in you know supportive, healthy learning environments, and that puts them back a couple years in their whole development and education. They don't get good jobs and all these things, we call them social determinants of health all these things that impact our health over a lifespan, maybe you're knocking, you know, six months off of every child's lifespan on average by shutting down the schools to save the last two years of 80 year olds lives. Okay. James White, I'm, I'm actually not making policies, so I'm not going to take that rabbit. But, but if your point further. is that's tragic, then, then yes, yeah. that's tragic. And, and this is nothing new. This came out about a month ago, but the CDC, which I'm, I'm sure if someone is skeptical about you know the vaccine, the fact that I'm quoting the CDC will fully convince them. But about a month ago, the CDC determined that people who are unvaccinated are 11 times more likely to die than vaccinated people. So just another little call to get vaccinated. A, a couple other stats that I, I found interesting. So, you know, we're... We're uh, coming out of a pretty big spike that thankfully is is going down again. But in, in the spring of 2020, we had, you know, about, I, th- I believe this was, the f- yeah, this was the first wave. Um, we were having about 40,000 cases a day. And 
there was about 2,000 deaths a day over that same time. And if you look at the graphs, right now we're, we're coming off a spike that had like 200,000 cases a day. Mm-hmm. So way more cases, but it's the same amount of deaths, 2,000 deaths a day. Um, the same amount of deaths as that first spike, which is significantly lower than what we were experiencing last Christmas. So I think that's encouraging. And I, I think it really has to do with the fact that, you know, old people, interestingly, who are conservative for the most part, are the most likely age demographic to get vaccinated. Like, that's sort of shocking. Like, all these old people watching Fox News, which actually promotes the vaccine now, but all these conservative old people are, are the most likely to actually get vaccinated, which is which is wonderful because that means our, our deaths are way down. And I think, really, they're the ones who need it anyways. So, um, Titus, so I, I found that interesting. Yeah, thinking big picture, though, like, how should we respond biblically or in a Jesus ish sort of way there's they're going to be more pandemics you know i was listening to a reading an article a while ago about how the next fight might not be over viruses the next you know medical challenge might not be over viruses but over uh fungus and and some really nasty mushrooms uh fungus actually that that can just devastate people um you know the world's getting waxing worse and worse both spiritually and and like the environment around us. So what what's the call for Christians as things do get worse? I'm not a fatalist, but I just expect that we're going to have more pandemics and we might Become start vegans. decreasing lifespan again. Yeah, I have no idea, Drew. Um, so just <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? You want to answer your own question? No, I, I, I'm not sure. I feel like we're kind of sort of coming out of the the heart of the pandemic for COVID, but I fully expect within my lifetime, there will be something else. And it could be, you know, within the next 20 years, which could be my lifetime, who knows? But, um, yeah. And so next time something comes up and this could probably apply to other crises in communities, how do we respond better? (laughs) Maybe we should just put a pin in that and, and come back to it someday. Yeah. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, I hope we do better than, than this time around though, especially as Christians. Um, but one other thing, I don't know if you've been following the, the Doug Wilson story on vice news. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. (laughs) So vice news just published about a week ago, published a story about Doug Wilson, who I debated on the topic of nonviolence a little while ago. It was a great debate. And it, it was a very gross article i mean the article was necessary but it was extremely gross what they brought to light about doug like doug has established sort of like a geneva like you know calvin's Mm -hmm. geneva a new he's kind of trying to do yeah he's trying to do the same thing in this little town of moscow Mm -hmm. which has about i think twenty five thousand. no sorry yeah maybe 20 20 25 people and like 900 of them are part of his church and he's got mm-hmm. a college he's got schools he's got this whole cluster um there he's kind of taking over the town and there's just so many stories of like women who were in relationships where their husbands were raping them for like this one lady was 10 years and the elders just said oh you need to you need to submit and you need to provide sex for this man and just a, a lot of other horrible things. Like he married a, a known pedophile. I think um, something like that happened twice, actually. 
Yeah. I did follow just, that a while ago. Just crazy stuff. And this is on top of the fact that like he's published like pamphlets defending slavery. Like it, it's unbelievable. And and then you have what's what what's really troubling to me is that there's people like John Piper and others who have invited him to their conferences. Like I, I do not understand. It's the same thing as, as like Mark Driscoll. And of course we've been following that podcast. Mm-hmm. If, if you're a human, you have been, and <laughs> I, I don't know, man, it's, it's just really gross to, to read over this and to, and to see that people like Driscoll, yep, they're still doing well. He's, he's got a new church. He's ranting about CRT. Um, Anyways, uh, if you want to read that article, article, it's on Vice News. Um, although it's it's just as morbid as everything else we've been talking about. Do you have any good news yeah. today? <laughs> <laughs> I literally am like new googled on Google News, like happy news story, and like the fifth news story. I was like, that's not interesting. That's not interesting. And it's like here's a picture of a woman in a bikini. So like I can't even find happy news that that fits with what Christians should consider happy. Um, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That's right. And that that sounds, yeah. Anyhow, um, I guess my question with all of this dismal news, I, I'm thankful that our uh, interview is going to be happy and encouraging overall. Um, I think it was. But I guess I still struggle. There was another news story. Oh, Julie Royce uh, did a great series of interviews with and now I don't have it up, but uh, with a there was this really well-known uh, Muslim apologist, Christian, former Muslim, and mm-hmm. he was going around Christ, uh, preaching and evangelizing. He got arrested and locked up for mm-hmm. a couple of years, and then everybody's like, "We need to rescue this guy, at whose name's totally escaping me." I'll post the link in the podcast notes because it's really worth seeing. But anyhow, it turns out he was a horrible, horrible man who demonstrated none of the fruits of the spirit when he was with his wife, physical violence, uh, lots Uh of abuses, abusive practices. And so you have that story. You have um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. You have Doug Uh Wilson. What are we supposed to do with all of this? Are we supposed to feast on the, the negative muckraking journalism around us about the Christian church as a way of penance for our, our sins corporately, or should we shut it out and, live in our happy little church communities? Like, what's the point? Well, I think we need to talk about it. Like, when I was a teenager, I'm just thinking back, like, I didn't hear anything about sexual abuse or any of these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So if it's not in the public consciousness, like some man who is forcing himself on his wife might think, oh, this is normal. But if, if you hear these stories where everyone's horrified, that this is happening, like it, it enters the public consciousness. So I, I think that, you know, the reason why I, I brought it is just to raise awareness about this sort of thing that's happening that might be happening in your church. And I mean, there's a lot of resources right now. I, I don't feel like our podcast is necessarily the place to go for for a lot of expert opinion on this this sort of thing, but there's a lot of ministries and other resources that people can go to for it for um, advice if you're in a situation like this or um, yeah, just how to mitigate it in the future as the church. Yeah. That, that podcast uh, is the Roy's report with Julie Roy's um, who's, she's a muckraker herself, but she does good work and uh, it's pastor Saeed Abedini and his wife mm-hmm. Nagma. I don't know if like save Saeed was the hashtag for a while. 
I guess what struck me about that news story was how complicit Franklin Graham was in the process as well as others trying to make this this shocking um, <laughs> this pastor Saeed a uh, Christian celebrity and they were going around trying to do a documentary and it turns out he was uh, brutal being really physically brutal with his wife so I don't know I don't think I think sometimes for me I spend too much time you know rubbernecking around this stuff yeah but at the same time I don't think we should shut our eyes to it and yeah <laughs> put it put in that one too <laughs> there you go well let's move on it's time for mere devotion well pastor drew i wanted to talk about something that i've been struggling with recently and followers the way is very reticent to ordain people so we have no pastoral leadership in our church and i just i'm feeling like a sheep without a shepherd so no i thought your bishop was down there visiting with you guys for a while <laughs> apostle apostle, apostle finney caravilla was was down but okay apostles don't always make great pastors and i think that's true for finney okay <laughs> although oh, I, I did i did sorry, actually finney. talk to him about this very issue and he actually had some very good thoughts so cool I, well why don't you tell us what the issue is and then tell us what finney said so i don't have to say anything so the issue is something that I believe I've brought up on this podcast before, and we are hoping to do an entire series on mental health if, if you get your act together, Drew, at some point. So I, I think I'll talk. I need in, to become de-stressed and better manage my own mental health in order to be able to get my act together. <laughs> there you go. Everyone. And that Drew only sounds help. funny if you don't think it's true. <laughs> Drew needs help paying for his therapy, so um, <laughs> find a link to our Patreon in our show notes, which actually probably will be there. I recently created a Patreon. Anyhow, we have no patrons yet, but if you want to be your first one, then jump on there. Anyhow, this this wasn't actually meant to be an ad wow. for that. <laughs> Get back on, uh, on track, Mr. Kipfer. Where was I? So, oh, yes, we're going to do a series on mental health at some point. And I'll probably go into more detail there. So I'm only going to touch on it briefly. But I have a, a long and colorful history with uh, religious OCD or scrupulosity. And I, I thank Audrey Assad for helping me put a term to it. Like I, when I was a kid, I was I think I was professionally diagnosed with OCD. But more recently, I've come to see that it's taken a pretty religious nature and that's an actual thing, which I, I've I've been kind of self-diagnosed with that, so mm-hmm. I've never been to a professional. But something I've struggled with a, a ton in my teen years, and it caused a lot of depression and anxiety, like like super intense. Like, who imagine like an insanely difficult mental health situation, and and then multiply it by by ten, and that was me <laughs> as a mm-hmm. teenager. And thankfully, I'm I'm doing way better now. Um, and, and yeah, we can get more into that in another show, but essentially, like in my, in my teen years, it had a lot to do with confession, rituals, and that sort of thing. Hmm. Now it takes on a more ascetic flavor, and, and it sort of bleeds into, you know, mere devotion and asceticism and my desire to live a radical life for Jesus. It kind of you know, latches onto that with its ugly tentacles and twists it right to where 
I, I really struggle with feeling guilty and condemned if I'm not living up to the ideals that I've set for myself. Like I have a certain type of person that I want to be. I, I want to be someone who's disciplined, who's making a difference in the world, who's making disciples, who's not addicted to his phone. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I I heroize certain people and, and try to emulate, you know, the, the pattern that I see in their lives. And when I don't live up to that pattern, I often feel like, super guilty and super condemned. And I, I was talking to Finney about this, actually, and, and he mentioned that a lot of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about and working through are, are not sin issues, which, I mean, I, I mentally I already know that, but he said they kind of fall under the category of wisdom. Yeah. And, and wisdom is, you know, he mentioned that it's a surprisingly large category of things in our life fall under this banner. I mean, we have an yep. entire book of the Bible, Proverbs, about how to live wisely. So he's like, yeah, you don't need to feel like you're sinning or you need to confess this stuff, but but it, it really is important to live wisely. And, and then he gave, you know, all his hacks for self-control and scheduling and, and finny stuff as, <laughs> as, as he does, which was helpful. But, you know, an, an example of this would be, okay, so I, I get home from work at a five or something like that and shower, have dinner, play with my kids, that sort of thing, do errands. And then the kids go to bed at 8. So I've got like 8 till 10.30. And I could spend that time either eating a large bowl of ice cream and watching YouTube videos and scrolling Facebook. Or I could spend that time reading a Dallas Willard book, right? Is it a sin to, to do the ice cream and binging? No. Would it be better objectively to read the Willard book? Probably most of the time. Although, of course, mm-hmm. you need a healthy balance in life. So... And, and then it's it's more than just those sorts of things. It also bleeds into so like my relationship with my wife and kids or with, with anyone really. You know, there's those moments where you, you respond to something in a way that could have been better. It could have been mm-hmm. more gracious. It could have exemplified the fruits of the spirit more. And... And there's a there's a trajectory of this. So on, on one end of the scales, like I yell at Brenna, right? Which I don't do, but you know, however close you get to that, uh, that's one end of the scale. The other end of the scale is like some kind of small passive aggressive action, right? Mm-hmm. I really struggle with knowing where on that trajectory, it, within the gray area, that becomes a sin. Because, mm-hmm. you know, being unkind to, to my wife or anybody is a sin. But a, a tiny bit of passive aggressiveness is probably just a lack of wisdom, right? And the reason mm-hmm. why it's, so, it's, it's a struggle for me is because, and this, this ties into what I dealt with as a teenager, I feel like I need to confess sin or somehow it's still on my record, right? <laughs> like, I, and, and intellectually, I know that when I enter... The new creation, Jesus isn't going to be like, yeah, there's that one sin you didn't confess. Sorry, bro. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know that's not true, but I still struggle with what, like, I want to confess my sins, but I honestly don't know what's sin and what isn't. Like, what's just a bad habit and when does it become sin? So, so there we go. Um, I expect you to, to be <laughs> able to fix me. Yeah. Uh, wow. You, you laid out a lot there and I first of all want to say that I think Finney was right on track in saying that we need to recognize the difference between wisdom and, uh, or I should say foolishness and sin. Now in the Mm -hmm. old covenant, that's often combined. 
And so I'm going to make some statements that, you know, people could come at me and say, oh, well, but what about this verse and that verse? And, and please do that. <laughs> but um, so speaking kind of off the cuff here, although I did some study and, and thinking, and this is coming even from some notes I've had previously, I think we need to recognize, like Finney said, that wisdom and a lack of wisdom is not um, sin in and of itself. So <laughs> can I go Can mm-hmm. I go to, to Bill Gothard, Titus? Oh, do you boy. mind? Here we are. <laughs> so when I attended the Bill Gothard basic seminar, this is the one that millions of people attended and, you know, sort of the gateway drug into, into the wonderful wacky world of Bill Gothard. And by wonderful, I mean, not wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does his very first night. He says, okay, so the Bible says that it is, um, thou shalt not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. Mm-hmm. You've read that verse, right? Probably memorized yeah. it. Your one wife of my has favorites. it as a motto. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we could probably get get our friends over at uh, Designs by Fern to, to make that as a motto. Yeah, don't Creative see the designs. kid in its mother's milk. Uh-huh. And he said, so you see, this is actually saying, and it's acknowledging what science is just catching up with, that it is unhealthy <laughs> to drink milk or to have dairy products with your meat products. And so he said that it's not a sin, but it's unwise. It's unwise to eat milk and meat products in the same thing so no pizza no bacon cheeseburgers etc all right and, and he he brings this up this is the first night of the seminar and he brings this up to emphasize how things that we call oh i can do this anybody can do this he's like but if you really want to be successful in life you're going to follow all the wisdom of scripture and not eat cheeseburgers <laughs> But here's what he does. So you might hear that and you're like, okay, so his, his exegesis is a bit weird, but he does have an overall point, right? Wisdom versus sin, and we want to pursue wisdom. Sure. But here's the thing. What he does then is he says, so anything I call wisdom, that's, that's I'm not saying you're sinning, but it's foolish not to do these things. Mm-hmm. And he starts by doing that, and then he knows that to reject wisdom is to reject God. Because God is the source of wisdom, and fools are rejected by God. <laughs> and you can mm-hmm. see what he does here. He then comes full circle, and the cheeseburgers, whole rest of, and you're going to hell. Well, he never would say that, but yeah, pretty much. And I have friend. I had a friend who um, he worked on a dairy farm, and he told me how uh, the Bible says that the the fat belongs to the Lord, right? In the in the Old Testament, and so in order to not in order to be wise and avoid, you know, and avoid going in the wrong direction, he would always pour out the cream from the top of his milk before he drank it. Cause it's like, I thought you were going to say he, he was, he tried to become fat. No, no. He's like, this fat belongs to the Lord. If I'm going to be wise, I'm going to like offer the fat to the Lord. It's not a sin not to, you can, but you he can wants offer to your wise. body as a living sacrifice if you're <laughs> overweight. So, so Gothard by doing that gets to, give moral weight to all of his cherry picked scripture twisting nonsense. And then he makes it a conscience issue. And so when we conflate wisdom, especially when it's like the twisted perverted wisdom of Bill Gothard, when we conflate wisdom with it being a conscience issue, we're going to be miserable. We're going to confuse people and mislead people. Okay. So this is kind of my bottom line. Wisdom is a guide and holiness is the goal. 
foolishness is a hindrance and sin is is the failure that we're trying to avoid. So if we think about wisdom being a tool and you can go to the book of Proverbs and like, wow, look at all these tools that can help me. Which tool is going to help me reach my goal of holiness, reach my goal of being like Jesus? That means maybe I'm not going to use all the tools right now. Maybe I'm going to ask the one who's promised to give to all people liberally who ask him for wisdom. I'll turn to him and ask for wisdom. Maybe the Holy Spirit will guide me in this. But it's not a sin to be choosy about what part of wisdom is going to help us toward a goal. Because just being wise for the sake of being wise, you know, ask Solomon, how did that work for him? Yeah, that's very wise, Drew. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I, I hope it helps us to the goal. <laughs> is it is it important, like, let's go to the example of passive aggressiveness to, like, outright unkindness to someone, right? Yeah. Is it important to know when that becomes a sin so you can confess it? Well, it's kind of funny you should mention passive aggressiveness because that's that that's <laughs> kind of that's kind of my weakness of of choice or habit. Um, I can't speak for you, and I don't want to bind your conscience to me. <laughs> but what I will say is, I it's a sin that I need to repent of when I use my words to make my wife feel something unhappy. I think a lot of us, maybe not you because you're nicer than me, but I think a lot of us know that moment when we're choosing to use our words because we want to get under someone's skin because we want to hurt them even just a little bit. And I can be passive aggressive and it's really subtle and she might not even catch on right away. But I did that because somewhere in my heart, I wanted to hurt her a little bit. Yeah, but I, I'm, what I'm saying is I, I actually don't know that moment. <laughs> and I don't know if you've struggled with an oversensitive conscience or not, but I, I feel like those who are listening who have know exactly what I mean. Is that like, because there is a spectrum, and when your conscience is extremely sensitive, you will begin to say, oh, was that passive-aggressive, even when it was not, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what that's literally the definition of an oversensitive conscience. And yeah, so the, the quandary is that I actually do not know that. And I, so to you're answer my own question, there are all sorts of things that you're saying to your wife or to your coworker or to your friends at church, and you're like, "Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said that." Yeah, I mean, that's not. I don't really deal a lot with it anymore. But when I was a teenager, certainly, like mm-hmm. I felt bad for things I had no business feeling bad for, and and so I mean, to answer my own question, I really don't think we need to know necessarily when it becomes a sin like especially for those of us who struggle with this issue with scrupulosity or religious ocd that that can become a burden that's just too heavy Mm -hmm. to bear what i found to be the most helpful is to simply rest so i had a a a guy who was kind of mentoring me when i was 18 who told me that i was like what's a sin how do i know what's a sin Mm -hmm. or not he's like you don't need to figure it out like just your heart's obviously you know, in, in a place where you want to do what's right, so you just need to rest in Jesus and and not not worry about it. Now, there's others who are on the opposite end of the yeah. spectrum who probably need to be more introspective and need yeah. to, quote-unquote, well, not quote-unquote because it's Scripture, but who need to examine themselves to see whether they be in the faith, right? Yeah. Um, so I just— I Well, think and, it, and on I, top of that, there are some people that— if they can find some way out of saying, yeah, I blew it, they're going to. Yeah. 
and and they'll defend and explain and then if they do give an apology it's giving an apology to make you feel guilty are you talking about doug wilson and right? <laughs> no i'm not doug know. if you're listening you you're this <laughs> sure this uh th- this council about people with with religious OCD is not for you, you, you yeah you're probably on the other <laughs> yeah i don't know about that maybe you should apologize to him for saying that <laughs> yeah that was a joke i think Anyhow, no, um, I was serious. If, I mean, yeah. he's not listening, but <laughs> um, I guess I would say, and I've done this with my with my wife and other relationships before, more other relationships than you know, like people at church, where if I think maybe I said something off, and it could have been taken the wrong way, like I like to joke and tease, and sometimes I might go too far, or I say something, I actually just reach out to them and say, hey. I said this and I'm not sure if it was like how you took it. I didn't mean to hurt you, but I maybe went too far. And I just ask them. And I think if you're in a healthy relationship with a body, that's where the whole Ephesians 4 thing comes in, where you're speaking the truth in love and you're growing up into Jesus to a, a mature mm-hmm. person. Yeah. That's so one that's thing like I've really... never, that's one thing I've never done is gone too far with humor or, or anything. I'm like sure. That. I'm Th- sure. Thankfully, I don't, never sarcasm I don't either. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> can i go one other place with this sure we have to recognize um that you know there's a there's a good conscience right we can have a a clear conscience or a guilty conscience but if the conscience is working it's a good conscience Uh and then we can have a seared conscience where we've rejected the feeling of guilt or the holy spirit speaking to us and it is just dead and Uh and scripture warns against seared consciences too but the the one where we get stuck on is a weak or i think i think a better way of thinking about it sometimes is an untrained conscience mm-hmm. and so for me what i'm looking for is how can i train my conscience to not misinform me mm-hmm. and i know this is really basic but i think it's on point for the podcast how do we train my con- how do i train my conscience i train my conscience through soaking it in the word of god there you go I Go read your Bible, people. I mean, we, we just talked for 30 minutes when really we just would have needed to say that. Go read your Bibles. Yeah, but I guess I want to I want to underline that just a bit, though, because we have to it's, – it's one thing to say, you know what? Because what do you do when you feel guilty about something? You don't do it. Like, Scripture makes it clear. If something violates your conscience, whether or not it's an actual sin, if it violates your conscience, it's a sin. Mm-hmm. But just because you choose to abstain from something, whether it's the cream on the – top of the milk or you know a beer or or you know instruments in your church service or whatever if you choose to abstain from that it's your responsibility then to go and get your conscience trained and some people choose they kind of like having a hypersensitive conscience they kind of like having their conscience untrained and have sort of this you know trigger finger every single time it's like oh that offends me oh that offends me oh that's a problem Uh and we can't use it, it can feel good some to some people, not to you, <laughs> but it can sometimes feel good to have a super sensitive conscience. It makes you feel spiritual. It's part of your identity. And I'm yeah. saying we need to do the hard work of training our consciences through scripture, through asking questions of other people and receiving wisdom from others. Well, there you go. That'll do it for mere devotion this week. Drew, do you want to tell us about our guest? Yeah, this is a coworker of mine and she's a member of the... I'm not sure if I went through this. You can edit this out, Titus, if it's redundant with my intro to her. But anyhow, she is a really interesting lady. 
and um, she's, I asked her, I said, so Holly, do you believe in God? And she kind of pauses and she's like, well, I believe in a higher power, but I don't know if he takes attendance. (laughs) Um, So I'm not saying that you're going to agree with everything she says. I'm not even saying I agree with everything she says, but she has a lot of stuff we should hear. She talks about um, how to engage with indigenous people. This will be dropped on uh, indigenous people's day that um, some people consider Columbus day. Is that Monday? Yes. On Monday. Okay. That's good timing. Yeah. When you're listening to this. (laughs) So, so yeah, um, I thought it was really appropriate. How can we reach out? It's kind of a follow-up in some ways to the conversation we did with uh, Lucy Kinsinger, but um, really interesting stuff. And do your research. After listening to her, maybe you're like, wait, what's wrong with Columbus? Go look him up. Oh, yeah, and one other no thing. Bueno. My podcast, uh, in the interview, I said her name was Henton, Holly Henton. It's actually Holly Helton. Helton. So, yeah. There you go. Well... Let's uh, let's give it a listen. I'm here today with a coworker and friend, Holly Henton, and it's good to have you here. Thanks for taking this time. It's good to be here. I wanted to talk to Holly. Uh, you've had a lot of experience with Indigenous peoples around the world and here in North America. And I just wanted to get some perspective about how you became interested and what a Christian audience could learn from Native Americans. So first of all, what's your connection with Native Americans and uh, your interest? Um, actually, I'm Ojibwa um, from the LCO Reservation. My mom is an enrolled member, and so are my aunties, and I have many family members here. Great. So you were born into it. Yep. And you actually spent a lot of time around the world working with Indigenous people globally, right? Ah, yes. Uh, I belong to a, a nonprofit organization known as the Global Indigenous Languages Caucus. Uh, We fund language programs for Indigenous communities. We give grants, and we also help them to build kind of a a platform or a template so that they can create their own language programs within their communities. And by language program, you're talking about helping a language that's going extinct or is extinct or has few speakers become alive again. Correct. Our main um, focus is growing new speakers whether it's the master student um, model or if it is the classic uh, classroom uh, setting as well. We want to grow as many new speakers as we can, whether it's children, youth, or adults. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to to grow um, native speakers of languages that are dying, to put it really uh, Eurocentrically or or Western-centrically? Why can't they just all talk English? Well, the problem with that is so much of our culture is tied to our language. Our stories, our ceremonies just don't translate the same into English as they are in our own language. There are many different words in Ojibwa that just don't translate into English. Mm -hmm. There is the most beautiful uh, word, which is the word for West, translates into English as where the stars go to melt. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was a more beautiful translation than West <laughs> or 
for insects, it translates into little spirit people, manadus, mm-hmm. are, the, are insects. Yeah. And I always like to think about when people say insects, oh, those are the little spirit people. Mm-hmm. And when you just hear that, it's just, to me, it's more culturally appropriate. It's more kind of magical. Yeah. I remember when I was studying linguistics, uh, I forget who said it, but the, the quotes, something like, languages are a museum for culture. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a place where everything about the culture is displayed, whether you realize it or not. That is so true. And you also have to understand that with indigenous languages here in the United States, most of us did not have a written language. Mm-hmm. It was a 100% oral tradition. And even with within the Ojibwe language, it is a very descriptive language. It's not just saying, oh, there's a tree. No, there's a, a brown tree that's maybe like a pine or it could be, you know, fell on the ground. It's more about describing it, mm-hmm. describing your environment, connecting with your environment. Yeah. As well as uh, being from the reservation here, being Ojibwe yourself, you uh, were a church planter early on. Is that right? Uh, yes. I did take classes to be a church planter for the United Methodist Church. Okay. And did you actually end up on the field? I actually did end up in the field, and in it was in uh, downtown Milwaukee. Okay, interesting. Uh, a lot of people don't know that in Milwaukee, there's over 14,000 Native Americans. Wow. From various tribes, um, from the Menominee all the way to the Oneida. 14,000, right, in Milwaukee. Correct. That's crazy. So tell me a bit, if you don't mind, about your perspective on Christianity now as an Ojibwe person and with the work you've done. Uh, My perspective on Christianity is that it is kind of a duality with uh, Native people because for the longest time, we were told that you can't go to church and then go to ceremonies. Mm -hmm. You couldn't go to ceremonies or sweat lodge and then go to church, that they were two separate things and you had to be either one or the other. Yep, not binary. Correct. And in some communities like the Oneida, there is a big um, schism between those who are in the church and those who are traditionalists. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to bridge that gap because there are the old prejudices, the old traumas from the boarding school incidents and also forced conversions and assimilation, which kind of puts bad blood in the Native uh, Native American uh, communities. Like St. Croix, it's actually in their uh, tribal charter that no churches are allowed to even contact them or set up on their reservation. Wow. And for someone coming from a conservative Christian perspective, like myself, that's like, what in the world? You know, we want to share Jesus with them. Mm -hmm. Can you explain, a lot of um, people might not even be familiar with the, the horrors of travels of um, boarding schools and such. Can you talk a little bit about some of that process and how it's tied to Christianity? Ah, yes. Um, With a lot of traumas from the boarding schools, most of those boarding schools were either government-funded or church-funded and established. And what would happen is these children were taken from their reservations. They would be From their families. Oh, yes, and from their families, and then taken to the boarding schools. The boys would have their hair cut, Mm -hmm. which... 
in our tradition, you only cut your hair is during times of mourning. So when these boys had their hair cut, they would start weeping and crying, thinking that somebody had died. Um, There have been cases of if you spoke your language, you were either beaten or um, one uh, gentleman I spoke to, he said they would put a tack underneath your tongue Hmm. if you spoke your language and that they were all given numbers. So you had no name. Mm -hmm. And then when you graduated, they gave you an English name. And just the atrocities that happened, there were children that never came home. Mm -hmm. Or if they did, they recounted abuse, both physical, sexual, and some people, they came back as the soulless. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that actually some of the, like, spoken intention of, I'm forgetting the name of the, the guy who started it. He said we need to kill the Indian to save the child. Correct. Um, and this was all done in the name of Christianity and in the name of caring for the Indian. Mm-hmm. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, was the one who would facilitate the transfer of the children. Mm-hmm. And to prevent the children from running away, you were not set to a boarding school in your own state. Mm-hmm. They would send you to a different state where you didn't know where to go if you did run away yep. and it was easier to catch you. And one of the stories from my own family is uh, my great grandmother was uh, born and raised on the reservation. Um, her first language was Ojibwa. And what happened was her parents died and she was 19 years old. And her two sisters were in the boarding schools. And when her parents died, they were going to put her sisters up for adoption. They would not let her take her sisters. Mm -hmm. And so she made the choice to leave the reservation and marry the first white man that would marry her. An hour after their marriage, she went and got her sisters out. Wow. And the only reason why they released her sisters to her was because of her husband, Mm -hmm. which I give my great grandfather a lot of credit for that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just the things that she heard from her sisters was atrocious. It got to the point that when she had children, she never passed on the language because she was told, well, if you teach your kids the language, they'll come and take them away. Mm -hmm. So she never taught her three sons, never taught her grandchildren or her great-grandchildren. I remember when I was six and I was at her house and I could hear her singing this beautiful song in Ojibwa. And I started copying her, singing with her. And then she heard me. She rushed into the room and she was like, shh, shh, and she put her hand over my mouth. She goes, don't do that. Wow. If they hear you, they'll take you away. Mm-hmm. And she was so scared that somebody was going to hear me and come take me. Yeah. And we can't overstate how much Christianity was tied to, quote unquote, Western civilization, or should mm-hmm. I, I should say Western, quote, civilization, unquote, um, and how much assimilation was seen as part of bringing the, quote unquote, gospel to the Native American peoples. So you're not a church planter anymore. 
And it's been quite a while since you were involved in, in church work as such, is my understanding, right? Oh, yes. Um, I do still do a little bit of church work, um, mm-hmm. but it's mostly consulting now. One of the things that I found is that when you're dealing with either Native American culture or any minority culture, yeah. be respectful of Native American culture because there are there is a way for them both Christianity and Native American culture to coincide. Mm-hmm. Like I said, in the past, if you were Native, it was either church or ceremonies. You couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. But I've actually uh, met a few pastors that were able to combine both in a very harmonious way so that it was more integrated into into their um, sermons, into their own practices, where um, there is a church in Oklahoma, which is a United Methodist church, and they actually have a sweat lodge on church grounds. Hmm. And the pastor there, who is not Native, is still invited to come to ceremonies. And I think uh, that pastor has um, a lot of, I, I give that pastor a lot of credit because even though it's not their culture, they're willing to partake mm-hmm. in those kind of ceremonies and activities. Now, a lot of a lot of people from a more conservative Christian tradition, and and frankly, uh, Western or white tradition, would look on and say, "But a, a sweat lodge has, if you don't mind me saying, mm-hmm. you know, they would look and say a sweat lodge is demonic, or you know, the drumming or the powwow, well, they're they're conjuring up demons." What do you say to say to that perspective where people feel like it's somehow sinful or mixing dark and and light with with when you combine these two traditions? Well, I think um, people like that need to put themselves in the shoes of the people that they're making these assumptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I never knew what Christianity was and I walked into a church. And I saw this big building, this blaring pipe organ music, and this guy in a really fancy robe standing at the front, and he's talking about, you know, hell, damnation, that kind of thing. I would be terrified. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, this guy's telling me, you know, about sins and, you know, how this is wrong and, you know, this is right. And I I see a guy, a dead guy up on a cross, (laughs) you know just flipping the experience, you know, I would be terrified too. But the thing is, education Mm -hmm. is important. Giving space to actually listen before making assumptions Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, well, this person said this thing, said this, that, you know, Mm -hmm. and going from, you know, third person, second hand, whatever. Going and being a learner and a listener and observing will go a long ways to working through Questions which, frankly, probably are kind of thorny sometimes Mm -hmm. from a theological perspective where you're trying to sort out. Frankly, and and I know a lot of the people listening have had to do that for their own traditions where they're like some views on women or some views on um, on even something like music and uh, alcohol. Some of our own traditions, maybe those aren't all they're cracked up to be either. Mm -hmm. And, And so to do that with a... Native American tradition isn't to say that it's easy, but you have to go in as a position of learner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Uh, I spoke at one church, um, actually up in Elroy, 
And before we even started talking, because they knew we were going to talk about some really sensitive issues, mm-hmm. they had two of their the elders in the church in a separate room, and they were what they call comforters. So that if somebody was having a hard time, because we were talking about serious issues, they could go and talk to one of those elders of the church, hmm. you know, and work process and work through the emotions that they were having and create that safe space for mm-hmm. that, you know, for that person. And I think that was beautiful that if churches, you know, it, it is hard, like you said, to talk about hard issues, but creating a safe space where people can honestly discuss something and learn from each other and have a non-judgmental you know mm-hmm. conversation it is prudent in in any church situation or any life situation yeah it reminds me um thinking about language and i i don't speak ojibwe <laughs> i am a, a chamukaman when we read our our uh novels and we're talking about and they're bringing in these ojibwe vocabulary mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know how to say these words. And so I talked to one of my coworkers who speaks Ojibwe and teaches Ojibwe here at the school. And she's like, well, Drew, the first thing you need to do is when you're trying to pronounce an Ojibwe word is slow down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just take your time, say each syllable carefully, follow the phonetic rules and just slow down. And she said, that's the thing that most people miss about our language is that they're trying to speak it like English. Yeah. Give time, give space to slow down and speak slowly, listen more. And and that, I think, is helpful for me when I'm wrestling through issues like what should I do as a Christian in an Ojibwe school? What what can How can I show respect and love these people well that, that have come to teach me so much? Slow down. Yeah, talk still, but maybe do more listening. And of course, you and I would both know that's a biblical injunction, right? James, the Apostle James said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, can you tell me a little bit, what are some other things Christians should be learning from uh, Native American, especially for, for you in this context in Ojibwe culture? What are some lessons we could learn from them? Um, some lessons I, I feel that uh, they can learn is really take the time and have church outside be in nature. Um, Sometimes, you know, our lives are so hectic, fast paced. And sometimes, you know, you're sitting in church, you got the little ones, everybody's getting kind of restless and just enjoy the splendor of outdoors, you Mm -hmm. know, that God and the creator have given us. And I don't think we appreciate as much as we should. Hmm. That's a good word. This will probably be released right around uh, <clears throat> Columbus Day, or maybe better put, uh, genocidal maniac who got lost in his way to India Day, or even better, um, Indigenous mm-hmm. Peoples Day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about why we should or should not be celebrating Christopher Columbus, I believe- the great discoverer of North America? No, India. <laughs> India, remember? He was looking for India. Um, I feel that we shouldn't celebrate Columbus Day. To tell you the truth, I have never celebrated Columbus Day my entire life. Mm-hmm. My family does not celebrate that or Thanksgiving. And just some of the phrases and some of the dialogue that Columbus had said that, you know, Native Americans, we were just so nice, so docile that we'd make perfect slaves. Mm-hmm. And then even the name Indian, 
I mean, I have friends from India and they are insulted <laughs> when, you know, that Native Americans here in the United States are known as Indians when we're, we're not. And a lot yeah. of indigenous tribes here are actually getting that taken off of their records and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with like here with the Ojibwa, we've been called Chippewa, which is a French corruption. Yep. I mean, a lot of tribes are getting rid of that as well. And with back to Columbus, I actually used to live in Columbus, Wisconsin. Wow. And they have a big statue of Columbus and they had the Columbus Museum. And my mother was in, instrumental in getting that uh, statue taken down. And I just feel that somebody who was so detrimental to the violent, you know, discovery of our people should not be celebrated. Mm -hmm. First off, he was lost. He was looking for India, found us. Two, you know, thought we'd make perfect slaves. And just because our culture, we are, you know, we extended him hospitality, him and his crew. And instead of seeing that as, hey, these people are really nice, you know, we should get to know them as equals, it translated into slavery and then later on genocide and later on assimilation Mm -hmm. throughout history. And when I hear people talking about, oh, Columbus, he was this great, you know, great guy, he discovered America, and I'm like, how do you discover something where somebody already was there? Mm -hmm. You know, it's more like we found him. (laughs) Yep. Well, and actually a a continent that he never even set foot on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Some people would push back and say, well, okay, so maybe you shouldn't celebrate it, but I'm an American, and... You know, Columbus did do something really brave and sailing all the way across here. He was a very brave man. Can't we respect his his bravery and creativity? Well, yeah, but it, it's always like with certain historical figures, does the good outweigh the bad? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, Columbus was brave to come over here, but it's kind of like I want to put a historical asterisk on his name. It's like, yeah, he traveled long ways and, you know, braved certain dangers, but... Yeah, it's kind of like noting, and this is, maybe this is saying a little bit too strongly because I think you're probably nicer than I am, but like, well, Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian, so, you know, you have to remember he was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And that's like Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he fought for the freedom of the United States, but then still owned slaves. And then on the 4th of July, when he died, he didn't even free um, the one uh, the one slave that he had seven children with. Hmm. Didn't even free her. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one more question. If if somebody wanted to reach out and, again, these some of these words are loaded, evangelize or minister to a Native American people in their community, what, what are some things they should do or shouldn't do? Uh, the first thing that you should do is test the waters. Um, Try to engage in conversation. Don't automatically lead off with, hi, I'm here to convert you. (laughs) Um, Because that will not go well. Like I said, there is a lot of historical trauma between uh, Native Americans and Christianity. Be open to what Native uh, Native American communities have to say, how they feel, and also respect their choice if they are not interested. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had uh, several cases of people try to evangelize us, and 
you know, we kind of politely said, sorry, we're not interested or, you know what, I would have been interested, but you came on a little too strong. Hmm. And also always make sure that you are respectful of the culture. Because sometimes I've seen other missionaries go, oh, that's evil. You're heathens. You yeah. shouldn't be doing that. And then it really turns off communities. No kidding. And also just talk to us. We love to talk. We love to laugh, mm-hmm. you know. Also learn the culture. We love to have hospitality. If you get invited to our house, come to our house. And I mean, with my relatives, you know, if we ask you to come stay with us, don't stay in a hotel. You stay with us in our house and we treat you like family. If we invite you to a ceremony or event, um, I would say attend, mm-hmm. be respectful. You might learn something. You might, you know, have a great time. You don't know. Mm-hmm. And that way it's easier to build relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's all that missionary work is, is building relationships. And as you build that relationship, you can talk about different topics like, hey, you know, I notice you don't go to church or, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on Jesus and, and about God and different things and have it be a safe space discussion so that if they do have questions, you're you're sitting there filling them in and it's just conversation starts flowing back and forth. And just be open with us, you know. I've been in so many meetings uh, with uh, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, and I can always tell if it's going well or if it's going bad. If the Indigenous people aren't laughing, they're not making fun of you, and they're not joking around, (laughs) something's wrong. Because, like I said, we love to laugh. We love to joke around. If we're joking around with you and we're laughing and including you in the conversation, we've accepted you. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. That Jesus Podcast is part of the Kingdom Outpost Podcast Network. For more articles, podcasts, and other resources, go to kingdomoutpost.org.